up this series, and I want to do so by asking you this question. Have you ever felt stuck? It's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling to feel absolutely stuck. And I'm going to tell you a story that I have told before. And so if you're a longtime Grace Fellowship person, you're just going to already know this story. But uh, it's the, the story that comes to mind that best illustrates this. When I was about 13, 14 years old, I got an opportunity to go golfing with my father, my older brother, and uh, my cousin. And we, we got to go and we were among the first people who got to go play this brand new golf course that was put in down in San Diego County in the inland part, like Chula Vista area down there. And uh, it had just was opening that week and we got these special passes to go and play. And it's a private club and it costs 200 bucks to go and play at this place. But somebody gave us passes and we got to be a part of the test group that got to go and play this course. And so uh, we checked and found out that because it was a private country club, you had to wear a certain kind of shirt to be on the golf course. You had to wear a certain kind of pants and certain kind of shoes and all of that kind of stuff. And as a teenager, I didn't have all that stuff. So I literally went shopping and bought golf pants. You should have seen them. They were so cool. They were blue and white striped golf pants. And I was styling. And and we went to this course, and it was kind of a desert layout. So you'd have, you'd have a fairway and a green, and then you'd have a tee box. But all the way in the sides was just desert. It was just sand and rocks and bushes and that kind of stuff. And um, as a result, now, I was a bad golfer even then. And that, none of that has ever changed. Um, and so uh, we, we started off, and by the, about the third hole... I had used every ball that I brought. They were all gone. Because, because there were signs on the side. If you hit the ball and missed the fairway and it went off into the, into the dirt, you could see it. But you couldn't go get it because there were signs lining the fairway that said, beware of rattlesnakes. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to let the rattlesnakes have the ball and I'll use another ball. And um, so by the time I was the third or fourth hole, I was out of golf balls. And I start borrowing golf balls from my brother. And by the time we got to about the 11th or 12th hole, um, I had probably borrowed a dozen golf balls from him. And we stood in the tee box and I hit a beautiful slice and it went off into the dirt just like all the other ones had. And I turned to my brother and said, do you have another ball? He said, I'm not giving you another ball. Go get it. I said, okay. So I walked over and it was like a ledge, you know, it's like here we are in the grass and about three feet down there is just this flat dirt area and it's lined with signs that say, beware of rattlesnakes. And so I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it fast. So I took off and jumped off the thing and landed with both feet on the, on the flat uh, ground only to find out that the, the only way you could describe this ground was the word quicksand. <laughs> And when I landed on this quicksand, I immediately sunk to the middle of my thighs. And that seemed funny at first, until I started to move and there was a bubble sound and I sunk to my waist. And now I thought, maybe it really is quicksand. <laughs> What's going to happen? And I started screaming, calling for help. My now, here's the thing. If you're going to have a crisis like this, don't do it with your brother there. 
because this was the funniest thing he had ever seen. I am up to my waist and moving toward my chest in this mud, and I cannot move. I cannot do anything to help myself, and I'm calling for help, and he comes over and sees me and, and goes back to his bag, pulls out a camera, and takes a picture of me. And this is the picture. <laughs> Apparently, I was wearing some pink nail polish on that day. But, but he begins to mock me. He calls my dad and my cousin over and says, look what this idiot did. And they begin to mock me and everybody's laughing at me. And I am squirming and literally getting deeper and deeper up to my armpits now in this mud. And all they can do is laugh. My brother is literally on the grass, rolling around, holding his side, laughing at me. And when I finally screamed enough like a girl that they came and helped me, what they had to do was take a, take a golf club and join hands and lean over until I could grab the golf club and they pulled me out of the mud with this golf club. And so I'm sliding across this mud and it's getting in my chin and in my mouth. By now, the, the, it was the most horrific situation in the world. They finally get me out and they laugh for 10 minutes and I am covered with mud, caked with this stuff, and it's sticky, and it doesn't come off. And they said, listen, we're never going to get another chance to play a course like this. You're playing like that. And so I, I played the next five or six holes until we were finished, completely caked in mud, and probably helped my game. I tell you this story to tell you there's a panic that sets in when you're stuck, when you can't help yourself, when, when you... Everything you do when you wiggle and squirm and you try to get out and you just get deeper in and you could, you could feel stuck in a bad relationship that you just can't seem to get free from. You could feel stuck in a dead end job. You could feel stuck in a habit that you can't seem to break no matter how many times you cry yourself to sleep and how many apologies you give people and you find yourself con continuing to go back to that same behavior and you look in the mirror and go, who am I anyway? There's a lot of ways to be stuck. And when you've struggled and you've squirmed and you try to get out of your situation and it has only gotten worse, it is easy to just give up and lose hope. But today my hope is to remind you that we should never lose hope. And I want to show you where that hope needs to be placed so that it will not disappoint you. And I think the easy thing to do then is to talk about Jesus. And I want to direct you to a typical day in the life of Jesus. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to pick up this story in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Now, Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been ministering to people. If you look in Mark chapter 4, you get a number of these great parables that we now uh, take for granted today that Jesus gave us and the, the lessons that come from those. And it comes to the end of the day. It is now nighttime. And they need to get some sleep and they need to travel. So Jesus has a plan. Here's what he says. We're talking Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening came... He said to them, let us go over to the other side. Now, by the other side, he means the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not an ocean, but neither is it a pond. 
It is a big, big, big lake. So it might be something like, um, if you would picture Lake Tahoe, right? Uh, which, by the way, I, I saw footage this week, that the storm in Lake Tahoe. Did you guys see that? Six-foot waves in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, <laughs> crazy, right? That's a big body of water. And that's exactly what you could picture when you're picturing the Sea of Galilee. This is uh, an, an all-night excursion to take human-propelled boats and go across that lake. And so at night, Jesus figures we'll get a bunch of boats, several of us, and we'll go across the lake. In the morning, we'll be where we need to be, and we could take shifts sleeping on the way, and that's his plan. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, now I know this is a story you've heard. And I went ahead and read the ending where Jesus calms the sea and it's not, it comes, becomes like glass and now it's, uh, the threat is over, right? But I want you to picture what it's like before that. I want you to think about what it's like when these men, who many of whom have, have lived their lives on that very sea, these guys are fishermen. This is what they've been trained to do since they were children. They have been on that sea many times during many storms, and this storm is so bad that they're convinced they're definitely going to die. The boat is filling with water. They can't bail fast enough to keep it out. Waves are breaking over the boat. This is a, an intense, intense storm. And Jesus is asleep in the, in the, uh, on a cushion in the boat. I want you to picture what it's like to be one of those people on the boat. They don't know Jesus can do this. It never occurs to them that Jesus could do this. They seem to be mad that Jesus didn't get up and help bail water. And yet, there they are. The waves are breaking over their heads and they are coming to the realization, you can't survive a storm like this. We're never going to see our family again. We're not coming home. This is the end of us. We're going to be at the bottom of the sea, and nobody's ever going to know what happened to us, and nobody's ever going to find us, and that's the reality that is setting in for them before Jesus does what he does. That's stuck. I'm in a situation I don't have any power over. I'm in a situation I can't fix. I'm in a situation that has power over me and is about to destroy me. And I feel like there's absolutely nothing I can do. I'm trying everything I know to do and none of it is working. I can't bail fast enough to save my sinking life. That's what they felt. But what they didn't realize, at least at this point, is that Jesus has authority even over nature. And all he had to do was say, shh, and the wind stopped, 
and the waves stopped and the sea became calm. And their, their stuck situation was no longer stuck. But this is just the beginning. This is nighttime. They sail through the night. They reach the other side. We come to chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. So they, they land on the, on the beach. They're getting out of their boats and there's a cemetery there right near the beach. And from among those tombs, a man is, is coming to meet them. Verse 3, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. I just want to stop there. First of all, there's more than one stuck person in this story. You got the disciples who just survived a terrible storm. And they come out and here is this crazy guy who cannot be stopped. And he's insane. And he's, he's demon possessed. And he can't even be chained up. And he is running at them. And you could see them probably running to get back in their boats and paddle away, right? But he comes to Jesus because he is stuck. To me, this is such a fascinating story because here's a man, he's the bad guy in the story. He's the one that everyone's afraid of. He's the guy they write horror movies about. He lives in a graveyard. He's filled with demons He's covered in blood because he gashes himself with rocks day and night. He has the remnants of shackles and chains hanging off of him. He's everything you would picture from a zombie movie, from some sort of terrible horror film that has you gripping your chair and hoping, man, I hope this isn't real. But for them, it was real. And not just for them, but for him. We see him as the dangerous one. We see him as the bad guy. But among those demons, we're going to find out as, as the story goes on, Jesus asks for the name of the demon. And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. He's filled with demons. He's stuck. I mean, really stuck. Satan has, has taken power over him. Satan has, has sent demons to take up residence in his body. He no longer can control his situation. He is hopeless, he is helpless, and everyone hates him. No one will go near him. Everyone's terrified of him. So not only is he hopeless and helpless, but literally there is no one to even ask for help. And it's so fascinating to me that you see this battle going on, and I don't claim for this, uh, to have the slightest idea how this works when you're filled with a whole bunch of demons, but you're still in there, right? I mean, his soul is in there. His mind is in there. But, but there's this battle going on, and somehow in the midst of this battle, this bleeding, screaming guy comes running up to Jesus and bows down before him. And the demons begin to speak and the demons say, you know, what do we have to do with you? We know who you are and uh, don't torment us. And they, they actually say, you know, um, 
put us in the swine because over here on the hill is a, a herd of pigs. And uh, Jews don't do pigs, right? And, and, and so here, here are these swine that picture of that which is unclean. And he, he tells the demons, orders the demons to leave the man and go to the swine. And they fill this herd of pigs and the pigs run off a cliff to their death. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a kind of thing you would expect in a, in a horror movie or maybe some crazy comic book. You go, does this really happen? Yeah, it really happened. This guy, we're going to find him at the end of the story in his right mind, the Bible says, calm, clothed, under his own control, and wanting nothing more than to be close to Jesus. It's an amazing story. And you say, well, the guys were stuck in the boat and the, the waves were about to kill them, but Jesus had power over the waves. He has power over nature. And now we have Satan attacking. But Jesus has power over Satan. And it doesn't seem to matter what has you stuck. Jesus is the unsticker. And the, the story goes on because after the end of that story, they get, the people of the village are so freaked out by what Jesus has the power to do that they say, please leave us. Don't even be in our village. And so after all night on the, on the stormy sea, landing on the beach, dealing with the demons, they get back in the boat and they go back to the other side. Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Now, I don't know how many of us here are parents. And if you're a parent, I don't know how many of us have endured the terror of seeing your child near death. But I can't think of anything worse. I can't think of anything worse. I would rather suffer 10 times than see my child suffer for a moment, with the possible exception of Garrett. I, it's okay. Little, little suffering is okay. But anyway, um, he has to suffer already. Uh, sorry, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with this. He suffers a lot already because I made him a UCLA fan. And so he's already... And I did want to say that that's an inappropriate shirt for church. Okay, was I talking about the Bible? Yeah, yeah, the Bible. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had this situation. And sadly, my wife and I have endured this. We know what this is like. Some of you have endured this. Some of you have lost children. It is... I, there are no words to describe how awful it is. It's as bad as anything. And here's this guy. He's, a, he's the leader of the synagogue. 
the last guy who you would expect to be coming to Jesus, right? Because all of these Jewish officials, man, they were mad at Jesus and they were threatened by Jesus and they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But listen, when your daughter's dying, it doesn't matter to you who the doctor is. You need your daughter to get well, right? He's stuck. There's nothing he can do. And so he comes running to Jesus. My daughter is near death. Please do something. But then the story changes, and we find another stuck person, verse 25, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. You know her story. It tells us what we need to know right there in verse 23, or excuse me, verse uh, 25, Verse 26, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. She had spent all of her money. She'd been from doctor to doctor. She had a hemorrhage that would not stop. She constantly bled. It made her ceremonially unclean. It made it impossible for her to marry. It made it impossible for her to worship because she was unclean and could not go in the synagogue. It made her a social outcast because if you touched a person who was unclean, it made you unclean. This is like leprosy, only worse. And she has gone to every doctor. And some of us know what that's like. You go to the doctor and he's like, oh, I can't figure it out. And they send you to another doctor and they can't figure it out. And you go to this specialist. Pretty soon you're trying anything and they're sticking needles in you and you're snorting herbs and drinking Clorox, whatever it takes. You're going to get better somehow and nothing works. And, and some of us know what this is like because you've had medical ailments that have been like this and it has cost you your time and your energy and your money and your hope and you're stuck. That's this woman. The last thing she has is this rumor about this guy, Jesus, that he has some kind of power. So she goes up and touches his cloak. Verse 28, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, she knew she had done what was illegal. She was unclean. She had touched a man. She had touched a rabbi. But she was stuck. And she was desperate. And what else could she do? And now she's healed. And he calls her out. And she is fearing and trembling. Verse 33, aware of what had happened to her, she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. She tried everything. There was nothing left to try and she was out of resources and guess what? Jesus unstuck her. Wouldn't it be great if... We, I think somebody should write fiction about these characters. Wouldn't it be great to know what happens with the rest of her life? I don't know what happened with the rest of her life, but here's what I know. She had a rest of her life because Jesus healed her. Now, don't forget, 
This is an interruption. He's on his way to see Jairus' daughter who is near death. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's one thing when you're sinking, but you haven't sunk yet. It's one thing when you're terrified by the enemy, but you haven't been defeated yet. It's one thing when you've spent everything and you've tried everything and you don't know what else to do and you're still sick, but you're still alive. This is another thing. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion of people loudly weeping and wailing. That's what you would do. People in the community have heard that this poor girl has died, and they're wailing and mourning and weeping. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the little girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. He said that something should be given her. The daughter was dead. That's as stuck as you can be. It's as helpless and hopeless as you can be. There's nothing you can do. It's over. There's no more fight to fight. No more decisions to make. She's dead. The people laughed at Jesus for even thinking he should go in and try to minister to her. They were stuck. She was stuck. Everybody in the story was stuck, and Jesus unstuck everyone. Life is filled with hard circumstances. We can easily get stuck. But I want you to remember one thing. When Jesus is Lord, even our circumstances bow in his presence. Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. I know you have challenges that are very real. I know you have weaknesses that make you feel inferior. I know you have character flaws that make you feel disqualified. But remember this. Even Job lost his temper. Paul persecuted Christians. Peter denied Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus even when he saw him risen. The disciples all abandoned Jesus. Noah had a drinking problem. Abraham had a child out of wedlock. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. And Lazarus was dead. And God got them all unstuck and transformed their lives. So don't tell me about how you're stuck and God can't transform your life. When Jesus called the fishermen, what did he say? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? What's our part of that? Follow me. And what's his part? To make us who he wants us to be. 
follow me and I will make you what I envision you to be. Some of us need to change our focus. Paul in Philippians 3, and we won't take the time to go there, but Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14, you can write this down. He, he talks about how uh, he, he lets his whole resume go. He pushes the whole thing behind him. And he says, but one thing I do, one thing I do, I press on. I refuse to stop. I refuse to give up. I press on toward what? Toward the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. I press on. I don't let it be about what happened in the past. Paul had some great stuff in his past and he had some shameful stuff in his past. And he goes, you know what? It doesn't matter at all. What matters is God has called me forward. And so as I want to leave you with something today, I want to leave you with this. Wherever you are, however stuck you are, two things. Number one, only Jesus can get you unstuck. So, so forget about all the, if I only did this in my own strength, I could do that. Or maybe somebody could do this. Or if I got the right pill or the right treatment. Listen, pills and treatment and all that kind of stuff can be very helpful. But if Jesus doesn't get you unstuck, you're not going to get unstuck. And so what do you need to do? Take the next step. Take the next step. Don't bow to your circumstances. Your circumstances are real. But your circumstances are not in charge. Jesus was dead on that cross. Not sick, not injured, dead. That was real. But guess what? Death is not in charge. God's in charge. Even death has no power over God. That's what Easter is all about, right? And I know you think I got my, um, my holidays mixed up. I know it's Thanksgiving that's coming and not Easter, but you know what? Around here, we've been dealing with a lot of sickness and death lately. And I think we need to be reminded about Easter. Easter is a reminder that even death is not in charge. Even death doesn't have the final say. Because Jesus was dead on the cross, but on the third day, that tomb was empty. Jesus defeated sin and death on our behalf. Death is no longer in charge. In fact, Christ is in charge. And in Christ, you are not stuck. And to me, that's worth celebrating. Uh, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper right now as a celebration of the fact that we're no longer stuck, that death is no longer in charge, that Jesus paid the price on the cross so that he could defeat death on our behalf and sin on our behalf. There's a, there's a verse in Revelation that I want to read to you. It's great. It's right at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, the exalted Christ. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. I was dead. And behold, I am alive and I have the keys. As we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder to us 
that He has defeated sin for us on the cross. He has defeated death for us on the cross. And so we're going to pray, and then the guys are going to come forward, and we're just going to pass the trays, and you, you should probably know by now, you just grab a cup and grab a, a piece of bread and hold on to it, and we'll all partake together. And while the trays are passing, I'm going to be reading a passage from Romans, and I want you to listen to the word.